Good morning. Um, a special welcome to you if you are new or don't normally come to church. I know coming to church can be a bit of a strange thing. I had an experience recently where I was totally out of my depth. Um, this isn't something I normally want to admit in public, but I went uh, for an evening for watch collectors recently. Uh, hands up anyone who collects watches here? Yep, that's no one. It's not something that you admit in public, let's be honest. Um, a friend of mine invited me. He said, come along. Um, he actually gave me a gift of a watch recently. And I thought, why not? It was only half a mile down the road for me. So I decided to pop along. But it, I, as soon as I walked in, because he didn't show up, I t- text five minutes before saying, I'm not coming. Soon I walked, and there uh, were all these guys standing around in circles, sort of going, oh, that's lovely. Oh, look at the patina on that one. Um, and words that I hadn't heard of before. And I didn't know what I was talking about or what I was doing. But it was quite a successful night, because people kept walking up to me and asking, oh, what's, what's on your wrist? And um, I sort of told them. And then someone took a photo of it. And that photo actually got nearly 4,000 likes on Instagram. So uh, thank you. Um, it's good, good evening. But I didn't know what I was doing. And maybe church is like that for you. With uh, bits of uh, said liturgy, uh, with sung worship, maybe it's all a bit strange. But we've come to something today as we celebrate baptisms and as we read about Jesus' baptism that is really at the heart of the Christian faith. What it is to be Christian is so caught up in this idea of baptism. Do you know that actually in the four Gospels, those are the accounts of Jesus' life, only two of them uh, recount the story of Christmas? And that's the thing we celebrate every year. And yet all four of them describe in some way the baptism of Jesus, or at least the ministry of John the Baptist. So it's this really important thing. And what we're going to do today as we look at the uh, baptism of Jesus is show, uh, ask what does it show us about God, and then what does it show us about us? So I'm starting from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So let's think about the context. What's going on here? Well, this is the start of Jesus' ministry. He's probably 30 years old here. Um, He's come from Galilee, which means he's coming from his hometown of Nazareth. So before this in his life, all we know basically is that he was born... Uh, his parents escaped, he's turned some water into wine, and now here he is. And his time has come, and he has come to John the Baptist. Now, I wonder if we know who John the Baptist is. Uh, John the Baptist is a prophet. Uh, he is uh, in a continuation of Old Testament prophecies, uh, prophets. Those are people who have been set apart to proclaim the word of God. And he has been living in the desert all his life, ever since he was an adult. And I wonder if you can picture this. Um, this is the description of John the Baptist. So it says that John's clothes, this is in um, Matthew chapter 3, John's clothes were made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the river Jordan. This is one gnarly dude. Can you picture a huge matted beard and big dreadlocks maybe? He's got these rough clothes and he probably smells and he's been eating locusts all his life. And now his time has come. His, uh, the purpose of uh, John the Baptist's life was to prepare the way for Jesus. You can read about this um, in the Gospel of Luke, where you can, you know, um, the birth of Jesus obviously prophesied, but the birth of John was also prophesied. He was conceived by a mum who was barren and a dad who was seriously old to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And an angel comes to them, not just to Mary, but an angel comes to them, and you're going to be, have birth to a prophet. 
And his whole destiny was to proclaim the coming Messiah. And, you know, imagine, imagine like Bear Grylls, but, you know, and actually, someone who actually lives in the wild all the time and who's actually quite hard, not just does it for the camera. But on the other hand, I just want you to hold these two images in mind. This guy, really rough guy, you know, handmade clothes, smelly, gnarly. And on the other hand, what do we think of when we think of Jesus? How is he generally portrayed in art down the ages? Maybe blonde hair, perfect nails. He's probably quite ripped because obviously the gyms in Judea at the time were excellent. What do we think of Jesus? Jesus, perfect. John the Baptist, dirty and unclean. I just want you to hold those two images in mind. We're going to come back to them. And so at this point, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. But John doesn't want to do it. And he asks, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? And um, it, you know, it says that John tried to deter him. And the Greek verb is here is in the imperfect tense. So it's like a continued effort by John. So he keeps trying to stop him. Why are you coming here? Can you imagine maybe Jesus walking down the bank to the river? And he's trying to, say, he's trying to stop him saying, no, no, this isn't right. This isn't right. Well, why doesn't he want to do it? Well, it's because he recognizes who Jesus is. And um, there's fuller accounts of this incident in different Gospels. And in the book of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus in this moment, he says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And John knows in this point, this is the one that his whole life has been building towards. You can see in our reading before, uh, verses 11 and 12, he's talking about Jesus and he's saying, there's going to one who's come after me, who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one to whom the Jewish people have looked for centuries. And in this moment, John is recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. This is God in human form. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The remarkable mystery of the incarnation. God coming to earth. One who has been in highest heaven, worshipped and adored all his life, coming to lowest earth. The one who has been adored all his days and forever shall be, coming in the form of a babe who can't even support his own head or control his own bowels. Remarkable. This is what we sing about. In um, the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, can anyone remember for me the third line of the second verse? Come on, come on. Um, Christ my highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. This is written by Charles Wesley, and this is actually excellent theology. Who knew that Charles Wesley was such a good hymn writer, eh? We should do more of his stuff. What it's telling us is that Jesus, as scripture tells us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in this hymn, Wesley was getting across this idea that it's not veiled in flesh the Godhead hidden, but veiled in flesh the Godhead see. So somehow God has taken on the form of humanity, but that means that now we can see God. We can see God. Imagine an eclipse. What do you use when you to look at the sun in an eclipse? You have to put on those strange glass, square glasses, don't you, the cardboard ones? Well, in some, I know that's a trite image, but in some way, Jesus is like this thing that enables us to see God. And so many people at this point wouldn't recognize it. They're saying, who is this guy? He's the carpenter's son. Who is he? And yet John is saying, look, it's the Lamb of God, the one who's going to take away the sins of the world, the one whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But what happens next? Well, 
verses 15 and 16. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Maybe this is Jesus' Obi-Wan Kenobi moment. You know that moment in the Star Wars films where he says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And maybe Jesus says, let it be so now that you will baptize me. But this is not against John's will. It says John consented. But why doesn't he want to baptize him? Why is that? Well, it's because his baptism was for repentance, for the confessions of sins. Sins are the things that we do wrong, that stand between us and God. And he was proclaiming and had this invitation to the people of Israel to come and repent, come and say sorry, and come and go through this uh, image of rebirth, of washing, of renewal that we see today, even in the sprinkling of water. Come and repent. And yet, Jesus, and we know this from Scripture, he says he is without sin. He was tempted in every way, and yet was without sin. So why then would the sinless king himself want to be baptized? And what does he mean when he says this is proper to fulfill all righteousness? Well, different ideas have been suggested. Uh, Some interpreters have suggested that he intended his baptism to be a sort of initiatory rite for his priesthood, high priesthood, um, Some others have said that Jesus wanted to identify himself with the Gentiles. Others have said that Jesus' baptism was his recognition and endorsement of John's authority, and therefore his own. Or maybe that the Lord intended to be baptized vicariously for the sins of mankind. Or maybe that this was a pattern of obedience for us all to follow. Now, those all might be right. And they're all deep, and especially that stuff around priesthood, and we could go into that. But the point I want us to take away is this. And because there's so much interpretation of it. We're loved by God, not for our deeds and our goodness, but by the deeds and goodness of Jesus. Jesus identifies with sinners. And the one who is without sin becomes sin for us. So when Jesus is talking about fulfilling all righteousness, he isn't just talking about his baptism, he's actually talking about his death and his mission, and his life, and his work. You see, Christianity is not a religion of works. Um, I love a good checklist, a to-do list. Does anyone else love a good to-do list? You love writing things down on it. I love starting at the beginning of the day with a blank piece of paper, and I love writing things down. And then as I go through, I love crossing them off with big strikes of my pen. You know what I love doing? Is I love doing a task that wasn't on my to-do list, but writing it on there anyway, and then swiping it off gives me real satisfaction. But I imagine many of us can see Christianity in some way like a to-do list, a list of good works to do, getting baptized, coming to church, saying your prayers. Oh, better say the Lord's Prayer. You know, have I been nice to my neighbor? Have I helped old ladies cross the road? Have I done the good stuff? And yet, when Jesus is talking about fulfilling all righteousness, we're shown that it isn't our righteousness that saves us. It is his righteousness by his perfect life and death. You see, in our natural state, we're separated from God by our sin, by the things we do. And St. Paul will even write that the wages of sin is death. Now, in the time before Christ, in the temple for the Israelites, they would sacrifice lambs, they would sacrifice um, uh, animals in rituals to atone for their sins, to say sorry. And yet Jesus, as John has said, is the Lamb of God. And he, for us, was slain. You see, God is love, and he loves us. 
God is love and he loves us. And that's actually one of the most profound statements that you can make about God. God is love. And doesn't that feel trite <laughs> sometimes? If someone were to ask you, who is God or what is God? And you were to say, God is love. You might feel like that's a pat answer. But I promise you that is one of the most profound things that you can say. What happens in verse 16 and 17? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And at this point, this is one of the clearest uh, indicators for us in the Bible of what's called the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity, you can spend your lifetime studying. A friend of mine has just written an 80,000-word PhD on it. He came out at the end of it saying, I don't really know much more than I did when I started. People have tried to describe the Trinity by way of toothpaste, saying it's like the colours, red, green, um, red, white, and blue. Some have tried to say it's like a three-leaf clover. Some have said it's like an orange, where the peel is the orange, the pips are the orange, and the actual segments are the orange. Maybe helpful, maybe not, maybe blasphemous, I'm not sure. But if you can't describe the Trinity, hold on to this. God is love. And to say that God is love has no basis and it has no weight unless God is Trinity. So unless God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to say that God is love has no basis. Because we, as we see here, when um, the Father says to his Son, this is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased in whom I will send the gift of my Holy Spirit, we see that love between, in, in the Godhead as it is known. The love that has been there since the beginning, that is going on right now, that will go on for all eternity. And in this moment, this amazing divine affirmation, the father says over his son, that's my boy. This is the one I love. I've always loved him. I bless him right now. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Whom I love. And you see, to be human is to seek love. To be human is to seek affirmation, and we do it in so many ways. We seek it good and bad through relationships, through sex, through family, through power, through work, drugs. We do it uh, trying to obtain the best body we can, trying to do up our house. We do it through our kids. But the thing is, with all of those things, whether they're good or bad or not, unless the need within our heart is satisfied by the love and affirmation of God, we'll always be left longing and wanting more. In the film Bruce Almighty, there's a cheesy, cheesy song. With the, it's called A God-Shaped Hole. And the lyrics say this, There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and the rest of the soul is searching. And promise me it's a bad song. Do not look it up. But it touches on a truth that's actually been articulated much better by St. Augustine. Famous saying, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We're restless we're longing, we're seeking, we're hoping, and it's God. That's who we are longing for, and we are restless until we find rest in him. We're made to know God. We're made to know his love for us. We're made to know that God's love, God is love, and that God's love and his attention and his affirmation and his affection is pointed directly towards us. And the thing is, in our sin and the stuff that we do wrong, we are cut off from God and we don't hear that voice over us. And it's only through the ministry and work and life of Jesus, fulfilling all righteousness, that we can come to know our Heavenly Father again. 
that he might fill us with his spirit. See, to be a Christian is not to have a checklist of good works to do, but it's actually to become like John the Baptist. And what do I mean by that? Earlier I asked you to have two images in mind, one of a person in ragged clothes and one of purity and love and light and perfect nails and hair and teeth. But John the Baptist, as Jesus comes to him, he asks, what are you doing in my place? As he asks, why I should, uh, you should be baptizing me, and yet you come to me? Why does he ask him that? Because he's saying, what are you doing in the waters of sin and repentance? You are the one who has no sin. And for us, we must become like that in the ragged clothes of our own mortality and mess and sin, standing before Jesus, not just in baptism for us, but on the cross, saying, what are you doing in my place? Taking what I deserved that I might know your love and your affection and your affirmation, that I might know the voice of my heavenly Father saying over me, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, with them I am well pleased. To become a Christian is not to do good, but to trust in the one who is good.